This your ship? I'm its commander, yes. Where's it going? New York City through the canal. You're a seaman. Yeah, how'd I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol. No, I don't think so. You told me you're an able-bodied seaman and you're looking for work. I told you? Yeah, will you have any? Why all the skulking and sneaking? Work cannot be that difficult to come by. Well, it depends on when you're ready to go. You shouldn't work in your condition. No, I can work. You're aberrated. I'm not. Know what that means? No. You've wandered from the proper path, haven't you? These problems you have? <laughs> I don't have any problems. I don't know what I told you, but if you have work for me to do, I can do it. You seem so familiar to me. Yeah. What do you do? I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. Hopelessly inquisitive man, just like you. <laughs> well, I'm sorry if, if I got out of hand last night. It's cold in those homes. Don't apologize. You're a scoundrel. <laughs> and as a scientist and a connoisseur, I have, I have no idea the contents of this remarkable potion. What's in it? Secrets. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 313, The Master. We just polished off some magical hooch that I brought over before the recording. No more hooch. <laughs> no more hooch. <laughs> Folks, this is a big one. It's been over a year Almost two since we've tackled a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and we're back. Each one feels so crazy. Yeah. yeah. And this is in that same category as There Will Be Blood, really. This massive movie with a lot going on ideologically, but when you're just kind of following the beats of it, you're not sure that you're catching everything. Yeah. This would be part of the era of PTA that's super in-depth, which is most of his films. Yeah. I would say maybe only 
his first one and last one, you can breeze through it a little easier. Right. Not to say that they're not great films, because they are, but they're not quite as dense as some of these other films. There's just so much to think about and talk about, and I do think that The Master is more reminiscent of a novel than a film in a lot of ways, even though it is, of course, a film. It is a visual Oh yeah, and medium, but it, there's just a lot to think about and sure. a lot going on, and it's very subtly conveyed to the audience, too. But even the visual element is on a whole other level for this movie, and a lot of his movies are some of the best I've ever seen, but this one is on, like, an extra level of crisp. Before we talk about The Master, let's get through all of the Our housekeeping. novel section of the show. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. We're going to do a, a brief Greatest Moments State of the Union momentarily. But before we do... Which will be refreshing for everyone, I'm sure. Let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. And you can email us, greatestpod at gmail.com. In either of those places, you can request a sticker, which is free, and we will mail that out to you. Or you can start negotiating for a listener request, which we will get into more in a second. But in the meantime, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you find us, and please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. So, again, another non-listener request episode, but... Mm. Hold on. Yep. There's going to be a lot coming. So what, <laughs> here's what we're going to do. An absolutely jam-packed April, May, and June. Next up, after this episode, three listener requests in a row, courtesy of Theodore, Mark, and Aaron. So there you go. The next three episodes after this one. Hmm. And that will close out April. So yeah, a lot crammed into the rest of this month. And then in May... Three more listener requests, this time from Ron, Mike, and Johnny. But we're also going to do three other episodes in May, and then six for One Trashy Summer in June. So all kinds of crazy shit coming your way. Lots of episodes. What I wanted to get to was these listener requests. They cost money now. We're negotiating over Twitter. We're negotiating over emails. We're using the tip jar on Twitter. There's Cash app. Ugly negotiations to be a part of, too. <laughs> don't say that because no. people don't know that you're joking. Oh. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. But as I just laid out, we're pretty much jam packed now through the rest of this month, plus May, plus June, which is off the table for one trashy summer. There are open slots in July and August for paid listener requests. You can. Pay whenever you want and do your listener requests whenever you want. But if you don't seal the deal, somebody might slide in and get those slots, and you're looking oh, yeah. at further down the line. The calendar fills up quickly. so Right. As we've pointed out numerous times, we are still going to try to do the ones we want to do, too, mixed in. So, Much to everyone's chagrin. <laughs> we will push your listener requests further down the line. Now... There might be a couple of people out there going, hey, you didn't say my name. So, yes, I have not forgotten about listener requests from Shelly and Thomas. Those will come after One Trashy Summer. Those were some some more of the, the free ones from the end of last year. Those are still in the pipeline. 
But yeah, so if you have a listener yeah. request, you can reach out on Twitter at GreatestPod, or you can send an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We accept Cash App, and we accept PayPal, which we don't put the PayPal out publicly, but you can reach out and we'll work out those details. Shelly and Thomas were like the touch tune situation where they got bumped because somebody did the play next. They paid more. <laughs> well, no, I'm still sticking to what I laid out in the Godfather episode. Yeah, yeah. But we've added more in. Right. So, yeah, in in the sense, but they're not moving anywhere. Don't worry about they it. They were always going to come when they were going to come. If anything, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to some of the people, because of all of the reshuffling and everything, we're actually going to get to more of these free ones that were left over earlier, like by a week or two in some cases. But okay. some of these ones we've been doing so far and then whatever. So it hasn't always worked that, like, oh, you get pushed further back. No, no. Everything just gets moved around. Yes. But yeah, 50 bucks for a movie up to two hours and 10 minutes and 75 for three hours and then negotiate anything longer than that if you are interested. If not, that's cool too, but I just want to make it clear that there are limited slots and then once they're filled, you get further down the line. So if you have one that you want, just go for it now and... Rip it off like a Band-Aid, because yeah, yeah. if not, then it's going to be December. And You're then... looking at 24, <laughs> or 25 even, maybe. Oh, yeah, and then the lead-up to next year is going to yeah. be endless <laughs> reminders. The prices are going up, people. <laughs> you have until this day to get your 2023 prices locked in. That's right. <laughs> anyway, that's where we're at with that, so expect three listener requests coming up after this one. Sometimes there's going to be two episodes in a week, like last week. With the turtles and super bad, you just have to be on your toes. Definitely. That's why you got to be subscribed. You got to be alert, know what's going on. Lots of episodes coming your way. Stay tuned in. This is my entire life now. Yep, is doing this show, and I'm fine with that. Definitely, it's better than other alternatives that could have come to be. <laughs> I know. If I wasn't doing this, I don't even know what I would be doing all day. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> crying. All right. Yeah, there was a crying spell. <laughs> Doris wrote me a letter. If you have not yet seen The Master or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast, it is streaming for free on HBO Max. You know, for one of my favorite directors, I definitely don't own that much Paul Thomas Anderson physical media. But his movies do seem well, to be regular. You're only allowed to buy 10 a year, so. Yeah. <laughs> That's a new rule. <laughs> His stuff just doesn't pop up on any of these special release stuff. Well, he has one movie in the Criterion Collection. Yes, and then I do have that one. Possibly Hard Eight coming someday. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think that his movies probably sell well enough that they're not always licensing them out right. willy-nilly. But who knows? A lot of people have deals with different companies, so I wouldn't True. be surprised if we get something eventually. Although I don't think that... PTA is a big fan of 4K. Yeah, I think I read that. So if that's what the deal is for licensing them, I don't know how much that's going to happen. But they did release Phantom Thread in 4K, though. True. All right, The Master. Budget, $32 million. Box office, $28.3 million. It was not a hit. Annapurna Pictures. We talked about this when we discussed There Will Be Blood. Paul Thomas Anderson's movies don't make money, generally. Some of them do okay. Yeah. This one did not. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
hard to sell tickets to a movie like this, though. The budget being what it is is sort of the halcyon days, the good days right before the storm. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, Annapurna seemed like they were right there neck and neck with A24. Now, in yeah. order to survive, they've kind of become like the cause in the movie where they've had to open their doors and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get involved Imagination. with James Bond and yeah. dumb shit to keep going. And Yeah, 28.3 is not going to cut it. However, it is a masterpiece, and though considered Definitely. one of Paul Thomas Anderson's best films, one that Anderson himself has repeatedly said is his favorite of yes. his own works, in addition to now being considered a top film of the 2010s, the Masters Academy Awards recognition is more indicative of its disappointing box office than it is of the film's current reputation. It received just three Oscar nominations, Best Actor for Joaquin Phoenix, Best Supporting Actor for Philip Seymour Hoffman, his fourth and final nomination, and Best Supporting Actress for Amy Adams. It did not win any of those awards. No cinematography nomination. No. Hmm. That's a shame. The film was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and it took at least 12 years to make it to the screen. It began when PTA read a quote about how the periods after wars are productive times for spiritual movements to start. And in a sense, I think that he pursued it as a feeling more than a specific story, a specific plotted story. Seems to be a recurring theme for him. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's what makes it feel more literary as far as a novel type vibe. They're very dense. There's a lot of thought going into the characters and what this all is and what this is representative of rather than a point A to point B story. Because I think in pre-production when we have news filter out about these projects and you're hearing about Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie and people are making all these comparisons to L. Ron Hubbard, Scientology. Mm -hmm. You definitely start thinking it's going to be one thing. Definitely. And then when you actually watch the movie, yes, there is that there, but... More of just an element, though. Yeah, you're sort of embarrassed that you even insinuated for a second that PTA would do something so beneath him, so ordinary and straightforward. Just by the numbers, yeah. If he made a movie pulling the rock up and showing you what he thought about Scientology, like this was some big takedown, you would probably just roll your eyes, and I don't think it would have any lasting I know. My initial thought of this was similar to when probably you started telling me about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and what that was about, and it's like, oh, Tarantino's making like a by-the-numbers Manson murder story movie? No. The film began as a collection of disparate scenes rather than one coherent outline. It was reported in December 2009 that Anderson had been working on a script about the founder of a new religious organization described as being similar to Scientology, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. While writing, Anderson sought Hoffman's feedback on the script, with Hoffman suggesting the film focus more on Freddy's story than Lancaster Dodd's. After the film was dropped by Universal and failed to pick up a distributor, Anderson did several months of rewrites, 
would eventually be produced by Annapurna Pictures and Goulardi Film Company, distributed by the Weinstein Company. This was that peak era of Megan Ellison being a power player on the scene, an advocate for the artist, the auteur. Thankfully, too, still giving some budgets out for movies that... (laughs) probably just lighting her dad's money on fire (laughs) but for us cinephiles thankfully so her dad probably made it 15 minutes into the master and was like you gotta be fucking kidding 32 million (laughs) dollars oh boy without really knowing much about her personally or, or any of that stuff and not really paying that close attention to annapurna anymore it does sort of feel like their financial difficulties and her dad having to bail them out and all that stuff. It sort of chastened her and the whole thing, and now yeah. it doesn't really seem like I know they're out there as much. It kind of stinks. I, I wish that they had a couple more big money makers so that it kept going. Yeah. Well, I think A24 cornered their market a little bit and were a little bit smarter about branding and keeping things more in check, too. They yeah, never yeah. spent like an insane amount of money on films right away and they never made as much either for example annapurna did zero dark 30 which is like this huge movie made a ton of money and a24 at that around that time period and especially in the next few years like didn't have anything close to that but they remained consistent and within their boundaries they didn't put out like whatever that fucking horrific looking link later movie was Oh, where yeah. do you go, Bernadette, or right. whatever the fuck? It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. God. These movies that were just taking chunks of money and throwing them out <laughs> into the ocean, just never going to see that money again. Yeah. <laughs> Anderson combined unused scenes from early drafts of There Will Be Blood, elements from the stories of John Steinbeck and L. Ron Hubbard, and from the novel V by Thomas Pynchon, oh. who he was currently already at work adapting Inherent Vice That's from. right. And stories Jason Robards had told him on the set of Magnolia about his drinking days in the U.S. Navy during World War II, including the draining of ethanol from a torpedo. Nuts. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Anderson conducted research about Dianetics and its early followers. Dianetics is a set of pseudoscientific ideas and practices regarding the metaphysical relationship between the mind and body created by science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard. Dianetics is practiced by the followers of Scientology and the Nation of Islam as of 2010. Hmm. Dianetics was originally conceived as a branch of psychiatry, which Hubbard would later despise when various psychoanalysts refused his form of psychotherapy. Though it is presented as a form of psychological treatment, Dianetics and its core concepts, including auditing and engrams, have been rejected by psychologists and other scientists from the outset and are unsupported by credible evidence. And that became the story going into this, the lead up into the master coming out. All of the buzz seemed to be fixated on any sort of Scientology connections. Was this a thinly veiled biopic of L. Ron Hubbard. What is the story here? Is this going to blow the doors off the whole thing? Is the Church of Scientology going to do anything about this? Well, it's weird because there's a, I, I think, kind of known friendship between PTA and Tom Cruise from well, their work together in Magnolia. How dare you oh. suggest that I wouldn't have notes about that? Okay, all right. 
<laughs> Let it roll. Anderson has acknowledged that L. Ron Hubbard and the Church of Scientology served as partial basis for the character of Lancaster Dodd and his cult, The Cause. This revelation sparked much discussion in the press as the Church of Scientology has a long history of litigation against critics of Hubbard. Though the church released no official comment on the film, Anderson claims that when he screened the film for his friend Tom Cruise, Mm. an outspoken Scientology advocate, Cruise erupted with anger, specifically objecting to scenes where Dodd's son Val admits that Dodd made up the tenets of the cause, which parallels real-life admissions by Hubbard's son. Anderson has admitted to a heated exchange with Cruz, although both the actor and director have kept details of their argument and the outcome private. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. In fact, the New York Times reported in 2012 that Anderson had originally conceived the idea of this film 12 years earlier, which would have been in 2000. Intriguingly, this was only one year after Anderson had directed the most famous Scientologist in the world, Tom Cruise, oh, yeah. to an Oscar nomination in Magnolia. And then in 2022, PTA told the Smartless podcast that he was born in the former Cedars of Lebanon Hospital on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and that hospital was later sold and converted into a massive Church of Scientology building and the street nearby was renamed L. Ron Hubbard Way. Okay. So a little bit of a personal connection there. I was wondering if this film marked a changing of the times in Hollywood, which I actually think probably was already happening, but this confirmed it. Did Scientology have diminished power by 2012? I think it's probably likely. Would Scientology have allowed this film to be made so easily without any fuss they never really did anything or said anything about it i know it is surprising or i've always felt like that part was surprising i just think their influence and power in hollywood was on its way down but you have to wonder what the deal was with universal bailing i know whether they didn't want to be involved with it or if it was a budgetary thing they were like this budget is going to be too much maybe they wisely could tell that this wasn't a movie that was going to make its budget back This is a movie that has to win Best Picture for it to be worth it, or else it's just a waste of money, because Mm -hmm. it's never going to... I'm only saying that from the perspective of how I feel studio people are. That's not how I personally feel. Of course, the art is worth it, but from their perspective, which is solely making money, this is not going to happen with something like this. But you have to remember, there was a time that people were like, okay, Tom Cruise... John Travolta. I know. Maybe Will Smith. (laughs) Not really sure. Those days weren't as big in 2012 as they were in 2000, let's say. And I don't know that they really had any influence anymore over who was going to win Best Picture or any of that stuff that happened with Crash and Million Dollar Baby and all that stuff. I mean, those days, I think, were long gone. Yeah. But there's always that layover, that hangover effect where... You develop a reputation, and so I think a lot of the country still felt that Scientology was still heavily, heavily entrenched with Hollywood. And some people probably still feel that way, but it doesn't seem like it anymore. Well, the documentaries definitely make me nervous. <laughs> yeah, they didn't go after the master, but they're going to come after us for yeah, doing this podcast really? about it. Even though I don't really know anything about Scientology. Same, ever. and I actually find L. Ron Hubbard to be like an interesting character. <laughs> You've already given money to the church. (laughs) 
I don't know. It is an interesting guy to read about. The primary influence for the film was John Huston's 1946 documentary, Let There Be Light, which I think ultimately was released in 1980, but it was made in 1946. Wow. Director Paul Thomas Anderson has stated that he was taking material from the film left, right, and center. Producer Joanne Seller has also stated that they used the film as a reference for production design and costume design. So what this film was about was essentially America's first real brush with the idea of PTSD for returning soldiers, the reality of veterans after the war. What was that really like? How fucked up were these people? Because I think at the heart of the master, it's really about how America moves on in time and there's a facade of something. And you think about this idealized 1950s suburban Americana, the American dream, the post-war glory. The master is really the dirt underneath the fingernails, the thing that we're hiding behind the shiny veneer, the thing that is the dark truth. Or the, the wake that's left behind for what continuously is shown in the movie. The cost yeah, that you pay for these things and how there's basically two polar opposite men at the center of the film who seem very different but definitely have similar struggles but i think they're really two sides of the same coin which is maybe something that i'll repeat but i don't really think they are different (laughs) one's broken and the other is trying to put on a facade yeah he's trying to convince the world that he has figured out how to control the animal inside. Mm-hmm. I don't know if The Master is PTA's most entertaining film, but it may be the filmmaker's richest and most textured playground. Definitely when, compelling. When Anderson clicks at his highest rate of speed, he's taking us, his audience, to his own special history class. America, often California, the uneven tapestry of time evolution he wants to show us a dark secretive brand of americana but his films are living breathing texts massive and flawed and wondrous perhaps most significantly beautiful yeah i think there's a majestic quality to this movie the america of pta's the master is a country confronted with the immortal existential question of well what now The war is over, and we came out on the other side, so it's time to hurry up and live, hurry up into the future, because the future is a promise, right? The future is a dream, peaceful, quiet, sunny, and carefree, but the reality is usually pretty different from the dream. The reality is not a postcard, nor is it some posed and safe picture from a dusty yearbook. There is no idyllic suburban Valhalla at the end of the road. At least not for guys like Freddie Quell. His America is raw and chaotic, dizzying and strange and dirty. Land of sexual activity. It's an America still very much in the throes of fierce and frightening growing pains. Change. It all comes back to change. Change that very much remains elusive and potentially punishing. And so there is America wounded but still standing a large percentage of its men carrying with them the immeasurable burden of war. And there is the cause, 
with a charismatic leader at the helm offering solutions and hope, there is Freddy and there is that charismatic leader, Lancaster Dodd. Digging into the past, you can discover the tangled maze of idiosyncratic roots, but you can never truly untangle them. We've talked a little bit already about the look of the film. It is very distinct. It was the first fiction film to be shot in 65mm since Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet in 1996. Hmm. So that's 16 years. Wow. The decision to shoot in 65mm came from a desire to replicate the look of photos taken by vintage Pressman cameras, which used large format 4x5-inch film. This also led to the use of the narrower 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. I don't know. The imagery is just like so detailed and so sharp. Anderson initially suggested shooting the film in VistaVision, and test footage was shot in that format, but the shallow focus effect was not pronounced enough. Also, the trailers for the film were edited by Anderson himself without any permission from the studio. The trailers were notable for consisting mostly of footage not featured in the final cut of the film. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) Some filmmakers specifically do that. Right. I don't know why, but it is a thing. Okay. I guess they probably don't like to give away anything that's actually in the film. Which I understand, but I can't imagine I ever would have felt that about this movie, but it is disappointing at times when you have an expectation of something you enjoyed from a trailer, and it doesn't make its way into the feature. I can't remember the trailer for this at all, though. It's almost like the legend of this movie overshadowed any trailers or anything. Yeah, I, I'm sure I saw them, Yeah, but I don't remember. I did see it in the theater, but it came out at a weird time. I, I believe it was like September or something like that. It was like an August or September type movie, and it just came and went very quickly. Yeah, I did not see it in the theater. Which is strange. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I don't know if... <laughs> I just didn't get the invite. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) There was also a surprise premiere held after a screening of a restoration print of The Shining. Oh, wow. So people went to this restoration screening of The Shining, and they got this surprise appearance by Paul Thomas Anderson and was like, I'm going to show my new movie now. (laughs) (laughs) So it turned into like a five-hour night? (laughs) I guess. The opening shot of the Pacific Ocean is interesting and particularly significant when held up against the landlocked despair at the dark heart of Anderson's previous feature film from five years earlier, There Will Be Blood. A half decade after perhaps his most ambitious undertaking, a film entrenched in singular obsession, Anderson turns now his focus to an outsider's maddening quest to fit in to be part of something larger than oneself. The outsider is Freddie Quell, portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix. Unlike Daniel Plainview of There Will Be Blood, Freddie is not tethered to anything specific. He is also not as concerned with concealing who he is or who he was. Freddie is a drifter, and the master, on a very high-level scan captures this restless idea of America better than anything else that comes to mind. Freddy wants to fit in, but he can't. He's a loner who doesn't want to be lonely anymore, but he isn't entirely sure how to change. This is circa 1945, and we are in the Pacific somewhere, likely Hawaii, though it's never really confirmed. And it's not too long until you're like, 
Freddie seems like maybe a tough guy to be around. Exactly. Yeah. Freddie is a man apart from his peers. He looks weird. He mm-hmm. acts weird. Joaquin Phoenix lost significant weight for the role. I know. It's almost unsettling looking at him. And came up with Freddie's awkward and pained way of walking. There's a certain physicality to the performance as well. Definitely. The curvature of his body. He's always yeah, hunched he's like and crooked. Forward. Perpetually struggling with something. In order to achieve the effect of clenching his mouth and talking out of one side, Joaquin Phoenix had this dentist attach metal plates to his teeth with rubber bands to hold them shut. The rubber bands weren't strong enough to hold his mouth shut, so he removed them, but the metal plates, complete with screws that slightly cut up in the inside of his cheek, were enough of a constant reminder that it allowed him to play that aspect of the character. How about that for commitment? (laughs) It's a haunting transformative performance definitely pta compared it to daniel day lewis which i guess is the highest of high praise you can have for something like this i'd say so and i do think that joaquin phoenix as far as american actors go has become the top of the class weirdly did that rapper mockumentary though well that actually plays into this i think a little bit after a few days of shooting Anderson noticed that Phoenix would use the whole space when they were filming, even if it was outside of the marks. So he told the lighting crew to have the whole space ready to follow Phoenix with the camera if necessary. He was just exploring the space. Wow. Gotta explore the space. <laughs> <laughs> just see, walking the property line. Yeah, the only other people who they mentioned as possibilities for Freddie were Jeremy Renner hmm. and James Franco. Oh, wow. I don't think either would be as good. No, this is a very specific role. But yes, I'm still here, 2010. So he really hadn't done anything since then. Now, the Masters only two years later, and actors take those kind of breaks all the time. But he almost, I think, submarined his career with yeah. that movie because people were like, what the fuck is this? And they worked on that thing for like five years. And if you look at his IMDb, things seem to be going so great with the Johnny Cash biopic. I know. And then there's this weird era, and I don't think it's really until The Master when he kind of gets it back together. Now, some people love I'm Still Here. It's very polarizing. It is what it is. But aside from even that, the choices in that time period were all very strange. Yeah, was it like the Two Lovers or something? That was one. Yeah. We Own the Night was in there somewhere. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a ridiculous movie. Uh, Yeah, but I would say a bright spot compared amongst some of the other ones in between. And then starting with this film, I think, really reestablishes himself as the top, top of the field. Yeah, yeah. In this tropical reprieve, a momentary vision of heaven after the hell of World War II, Freddy attempts to be one of the boys by pretending to fuck the giant woman made of sand that some others have built. It's just that friend that takes the jokes too far. Exactly. And everyone's like, man, we're not really sure that we want to hang out with you. Though there are some good-natured chuckles at first, it feels off and gets uncomfortable pretty quick. Freddy lingers too long, gets a little too enthusiastic, Mm -hmm. starts alternating between pounding his crotch up against it and then using his hands, and it's like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to be fair, they shouldn't have made this mermaid or whatever so detailed. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. But yeah, Freddy's sexual obsession is a huge part of this film. Definitely. And, and he takes it a, a step further here in, momentarily. 
there's all kinds of threads. There's deviance, there's homosexuality, which mm-hmm. there's a big queer interpretation of this film. There's the v- vague threat or vibe of sexual assault, even if there never really is that. But you kind of have the sense that he's always on the verge of something bad happening, even though a lot of times he is able to rein himself in and wear clothes and be normal. But I think that's what's kind of powerful and interesting about the performances. You do sort of always believe that he's about to do something horrible. Definitely. (laughs) He seems like a loose cannon. It seems like you're on the verge of an explosion at any point. And in this moment with the giant sand woman, you kind of get a lot of echoes throughout the rest of the film. Giant women and infantilized Freddy. He's now curled up in the fetal position alongside the sand woman. Very reminiscent of John Lennon against Yoko Ono in that one album cover. Oh, yeah. But there is something to putting women on a pedestal at play with Freddy. But it's more than just the idea of sexuality. It's more than just his cock in a pussy. Mm -hmm. It's what women represent to him, which is this fantasy of stability, of a family, of love, of relationship, of having someone. The normalcy that his life is very devoid of. So he acts like a monster, who would be like wagging his dick at somebody on the street or something. But the broken hearted truth is that it's more, he wants so badly to be normal mm-hmm. and have a family. The very first line in the film where Freddie talks about his treatment for crabs, that was all entirely improvised. Oh, wow. <laughs> it says some weird shit. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking jug juice, the Navy slang for imbibing fuel mixed with cans of fruit, was detailed by the staff of the aircraft carrier USS Hornet Museum, one of the locations utilized for the shoot. The scene in which Freddy gets ethanol out of the torpedo on the ship is also based on a true story told by Jason Robarbs. Which is wild. So it's clear that Freddy is fucked up and his desires are dangerous. It's more than just sexuality. He drinks literal poisons (laughs) to intoxicate himself. There's a lot in the film about alcohol, alcoholism, and then alcohol used to repress one's true nature, which I think is a big theme. Secrets, as he says. (laughs) I do enjoy the part when he asks him if it's poison, and he's like, not if you know how to drink it. (laughs) I'm going to show you a series of pictures. I want you to tell me what you, the first thing that comes to your mind. There's no right or wrong answers. Tell me what you see. Well, that's a pussy. Lady's pussy. What about this one? Looks like cock going inside of a pussy. All right, let's try it again. Tell me what you see, Freddy. Looks like... It's just like a cock, actually, upside down. The Rorschach inkblot cards in the hospital scene with the psychologist are real ones. However, he skips from card one to card four, which violates the very strict rules of Rorschach administration. Again, a pornographic fixation. Yeah. That's a cock. That's a cock and a pussy. That's a pussy. Oh, that's a cock. 
that's a place between the pussy and the ass. Like he says, <laughs> there's other versions of this scene. I'm not even yeah. sure which one I'm pulling from YouTube to put in here because I think some of the clips on it's sort of like the town. I right. think some of the clips online are not the ones from the movie exactly, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely one of those movies that it's like if I was like, hey, my parents, you want to check out a movie with me? Like in ten minutes, I think they'd be like, I don't think this is for us. Yeah, even if my parents weren't horrified by that kind of language and stuff, I still think they would be out like yeah. almost immediately. Like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the cool thing is you're never sure whether or not he's being real. Is right. that his real answer or is he being a fucking idiot? It's clear that he does have some weird sexual hangups, but... There is this put-on quality. Yeah, you're not really sure if that would be his legitimate answer to those questions or if he's just that preoccupied with sex or, or what's going on. But needless to say, he's got women on the brain and he's got fucked up kidneys. <laughs> yeah. Probably liver. Everything is fucked up. But there's some moments here with the psychologist when he's being discharged from the army where he talks about two things. First, the, the crying episode... Brought on by a letter. I didn't cry. That didn't happen. All right, well, I was crying. <laughs> what you would call <laughs> nostalgia. Yeah. So, yes. The crying episode over the letter from Doris, his sweetheart back home. And then he also talks about a vision where he was sitting at a table drinking with his mother and father. And it just seemed like a normal, domestic, happy household kind of a thing. And these two things, this letter... This relationship in the past with Doris and then this fantasy of a family. These are not two things that you can just brush off at the beginning of the film. I think they're very important in figuring out... It's if, his whole destination. Yeah, who he is, what's going on with him, what he wants. We're dealing with a truly lost man coming back from war. We never get into the specifics about the horrors of war, but we don't really need to. We get it. Mm-hmm. But... You also think that he was probably fucked up going into it? I'd say so. Something that will reveal itself as we move along. After returning home, Freddy finds work as a photographer in a department store. Doesn't it almost seem like, as this starts off, it feels like he has it more together than you would expect? This seems like more of a normal job well, within society than I would have expected with the preceding scenes. You have to understand. Yeah. Lay it on me. He was a veteran. Right. The world was a lot different. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they were looking for college degrees. and Not that you would need one sure. to necessarily be a photographer anyway, but I'm saying he probably could have gotten an even better job. Just sure. If you can yeah. put a suit on and act kind of normal for one day, right. the fact that he's a veteran coming back, it doesn't really surprise me that he's done okay for himself. Yeah. Because I think that's more true to certain types of mental illness. Yeah. Where there true. are good days and bad days, and then there's incidents that set him off and that's stuff. Right. But yeah, I think in a post-World War II world, he's probably going to be treated like a hero. The country hasn't had any weird vibes about war yet in the same way that we would with like Vietnam and then mm -hmm. other stuff. Not that it was ever okay to blame the troops or shit on them, but you're coming back. People's reactions after World War II, I'm sure, were, we want to have people like him. True working here and they don't realize that like how insane he is he's a goddamn war hero oddly enough not the only time that that scene is gonna be referenced <laughs> i think <laughs> okay so he's 
chugging along here in the department store. This gig is emblematic of Freddy's plight. He is a Navy veteran, obviously disturbed beyond belief, being tossed back into peaceful post-war society, and he's struggling to adjust. He can't seem to color within the lines, and society wasn't exactly eager or equipped to contend with this kind of trauma. So what I mean when I say that this particular gig is emblematic of Freddy's plight is that it puts him in a position where posed artificial normalcy is at his fingertips, but he's not a part of it. Here's the rest of the world ready to move on, and Freddy's still fucked. The whole experience is voyeuristic. He's putting families together. He's putting couples together. He's putting happy young people together. They're smiling. He's posing them. They're wearing nice clothes. This is a false moment, but it's supposed to be symbolic of happy times for these people. Right. And he's right there, right in front of them, but he's kept at a distance. He's watching through the lens of the camera. He's not quite... He's an observer. ...able to be part of it. Interesting song choices throughout the film. Yeah. The first one here, Get Thee Behind Me, Satan. These are all very deliberate choices because we'll talk about it more when we get into some of the other songs, but this song in particular, the lyrics are sort of that double-edged sword of trying to maintain purity like keep the urges at bay, sexual mm-hmm. parentheses, but it's also sort of relishing how fun it is to be bad, like those kind of songs, which sure. was very big uh-huh. before you could just do wet ass pussy or some song like that. You had to sort of dance around. <laughs> yeah, with they the were putting it out there back then. <laughs> Get thee behind me, Satan was sort of that era's wet ass pussy. <laughs> People were like they're shocked by these lyrics. While we're talking about the music, though. Paul Thomas Anderson teaming up with Johnny Greenwood to start doing the scores for these movies. Yeah. One of the great moments because every life. Yeah. Every single one of these scores that he does for these movies is great. Freddie gets involved with Martha, the shop girl played by Amy Ferguson, a cute young lady interested in dating a soldier. No big surprise. Yet when she spends time with him, I think that she realizes Hmm. He might not be the most stable man. He's drinking photo development chemicals right out of the lab there, (laughs) forcing her to drink it. They go on a date. He's completely passed out. Just a quick shot. Hilarious. I don't know that he ever really closes the deal with her. I don't think so. I think that is part of his frustrated explosion with this guy. Yeah, or just his whole life Yeah. until he finally reaches the conclusion at the end. Yeah, I'm thinking she was shutting the door when he just was asleep for their entire date. (laughs) Freddie is prone to violent and erratic behavior, getting fired from his job at the department store after getting into a fight with a customer, played by W. Earl Brown. Hmm. He was the camera guy in Scream. Oh, yeah. He played Meatloaf in the VH1 biopic. How about that? (laughs) I believe he was on Deadwood, right? W. Earl Brown? Oh, yes, yes. And time moves on, and these are those disparate scenes, the original idea, because you're kind of going from one thing to another. You start out with this Army-Navy thing, you're in some sort of beach paradise, then there's the, we came back from the war and we're fucked up, now all of a sudden we're at a department store, and then he storms out of here, and then next thing you know, he finds work on a farm in California. Although it seems like the most desolate farmland it seems like he went from society to out of society 
Yeah. I think the department store, it's unclear where that is, but I kind of think it's more East Coast. He's a drifter. That's right. He's got no roots, an aimless existence. The whole world is sweat on your brow, dirt underneath your fingernails, could be gone in the morning. That's the life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some really spectacular visuals here in this little segment, though. Unbelievable. But Freddie's time in manual labor is also short-lived. <laughs> Hey, you want to try this booze? An elderly man collapses after drinking some of Freddy's homemade brew. And when the poisoning accusations start flying amongst the other laborers... No, he just needs some water. Freddy makes a run for it in the misty dawn. Which is a great shot. It looks awesome. One night, Freddy finds himself in San Francisco and stows away on a yacht called Aletheia, which is the Greek word for truth. It comes from the prefix... Uh, and the word leith, which means oblivion, so it literally translates as unforgetfulness, hmm. which fits the intentions of the cause of remembering past lives and forgotten memories. Although it will turn out that the cause will not endear themselves to the owner of this yacht for very long. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> yeah. that, that will get cut off. But before he's even discovered on this yacht, there's some more cool cinematography. They do that shot of the yacht going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. which is an homage to a famous shot from The Lady from Shanghai, directed by Orson Welles. Oh, that's cool. The yacht belongs to a follower of Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the leader of a philosophical movement known simply as The Cause. When Freddy is discovered, Dodd describes him as aberrated, and also claims to have met him in the past, but cannot remember where. This was the fifth and final collaboration between Hoffman and Paul Thomas Anderson. It's a bummer. I actually had forgotten that he does have a small part in Heart 8. Oh, okay. Because I was like, what is the fifth one? I couldn't remember. Like, I was trying to piece it all together, Mm -hmm. but he actually is in that movie a little bit. This is another... Home run performance, of course, from Hoffman, one of the greats of all time. There's a restrained flamboyance. The charisma of a revival tent preacher laced with a simmering rage. Right. A weak man. It's an insecurity. Masquerading as one with iron will. Yes. Quite simply, a charlatan. Definitely. Hoffman does more or less resemble L. Ron Hubbard in some way, so... There is the physical comp as well. I don't think that he was doing any L. Ron Hubbard impersonation or trying to no. research the character too much in that sense, but there are some similarities, some crossover. But he totally makes this role its own thing. Dodd invites Freddie to stay aboard and attend the marriage of his daughter as long as he will make more of his special homemade brew. So when did he sample this? which Dodd has sampled and developed a taste for. He references that they interacted already, and Freddie was so fucked up that he doesn't have any memory. And right. he's the one that has Freddie's flask. True. And he drank it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come and join us. Leave your worries for a while. They'll be there when you get back. And your memories aren't invited. <laughs> Sounds Just great. the shit that falls out of his mouth. <laughs> it's always so absurd. <laughs> And yet you think it sounds deep, and you're like, yeah, this is great. That's why it works. Yeah, and I think with Dodd, what we see over the course of the film is that he almost 
instinctually recognizes the similarities between himself and Freddy, and he almost knows that, oh, by the grace of God, it could be me yeah. if certain things hadn't happened in certain ways. Because I think he's barely concealing his own horrific alcoholism. Yeah. yeah, his own animalistic urges. He's barely holding it together. But yeah, he's got the facade down. Yeah, I think that there's some potential that Dodd is gay or potentially asexual in some way. I think there was like rumors that L. Ron Hubbard was impotent at mm. the point where he was on a boat. Now, this isn't the exact same scenario as the big Scientology boat phase, but it's sort of, I think, meant to mirror it, though, in a way. Because it was probably a pretty long journey from San Francisco all the way down to the Panama Canal and then all the way over to the other side to get to New York. God knows how long that would take. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I know the whole gay element comes up in a lot of the pieces about this movie, which I do think it's there and you can get that out of it, but I don't know that it's necessarily the case. I th- I think that Dodd is probably gay. I don't really think that Freddie is gay, but I don't know that I would think he's straight either. <laughs> yeah. I, <don't... laughs> I think he's just... I don't know what you would cr- just describe whatever. him. Yeah. <laughs> Drunk. Yeah. <laughs> just out for a good time. And so you have an unlikely bond over an unlikely reason. This hooch. This horrific drink. <laughs> endears him to this guy but there's obviously a much deeper psychological connection here between these two i was just thinking about before the show and you're like you have to be a certain level of alcoholic to think that drinking this is okay (laughs) like so insane yeah it's horrifying what type of man must dodd be is he really all that different from freddie if he's bonding with him over this fucking poison. I know. If he looks at Freddy and thinks, this is a guy I want to have hanging around. Right. How different can he really be? Even at the warnings of people that this guy might not be great. Aside from Lancaster, the Dodd brood is as follows. His wife, Peggy, played by Amy Adams. Originally, Reese Witherspoon was in the mix. She would end up being an inherent vice. His son, Val played by Jesse Plemons. He's actually only 14 years younger than Amy Adams. It seems like it would actually be less, but he seems older than he is. Yeah. It's not clear, though, that she's his mother, and I'm not entirely sure that she's supposed to be. Mm, They do reference an ex-wife or ex-wives or something. His daughter, Elizabeth, played by Amber Childers, originally in the mix, Amanda Seyfried, Emma Stone, and Deborah Ann Wall. What a range. We were discussing before we started recording. <laughs> we were big fans of Jessica from True Blood. Definitely. And she was the highlight of the show, really. It seemed like Deborah Ann Wall was going to have a career, and there was always this to point to, because it was rumored a year or two before it actually happened. It's like, oh, she's going to be in the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And it's one of those things where if you're not paying attention to the casting all the time, you get to the point where the movie's actually coming out, and you're like, oh, she's not in it, I right. guess. <laughs> and his son-in-law, to be, I guess, Clark, played by Rami Malek. Which I feel like this is the first time I saw him in a movie. It probably was for me, but yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't remember. Good day. Good day, good day, good day. What a day. What a day. Mama. Ooh. Rascal. Clark, big day. 
Happy day indeed, sir. How are you feeling? I feel pretty well, thank you. How are you? Wonderful. As long as you hold these bodies in this life, you will be man and wife. You may kiss the bride. Previous to the cause was awful. <laughs> awful. There's a cycle, like life. Uh, birth, excitement, growth, decay, death. <laughs> now, now, how about this? Here it comes. Right, a, a large dragon. My right, teeth. <laughs> Blood dripping, red eyes. What do I got? A lasso. Right, I whip it up. I wrap it around its neck and I wrestle. Wrestle. Wrestle him to the ground. I snap up. I say, sit, dragon. Dragon sits. I say, stay. Dragon stays. Now it's got a leash on. Take it for a walk. <laughs> that's what where we're at with it now. It stays on command. Next, we're going to teach it to roll over and play dead. <laughs> I love the pompous speech that Dodd gives at the wedding reception with his eager, nauseating, exaggerated laughs from his followers. I know. Acting like it's so funny. I hate when he mugs for the crowd and tries to be funny and does like the voice. Decays. Yeah. Death. Before the cause, marriage was awful. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> it's like, shut up. Canned Saved by the Bell laughter. <laughs> but he talks about the dragon, this dragon metaphor. Mm -hmm. And this is something important, and we'll circle back to it later. But I would keep the dragon in mind when we think about Freddy. What a day. We fought against the day, and we won. Yeah, We won. Asinine. <laughs> Even at sea, Freddy remains a bit of a drifter floating through the ship, dropping in on various psychological exercises sessions therapies and explorations endless material it seems like has been recorded for these people to listen to there's conflict within freddy at all times he's seeing this all as a hustle but he's also seduced by the idea of being included in this strange family he also appreciates the presence of pretty young women on the yacht still barely able to control his basest animal <laughs> urges yeah sending nice polite notes to the young women on board one of the main things of the cause is returning to the inherent state of perfect which is a big thing that they talk about but i like to think about that in relationship with 
Freddy and who mm-hmm. Freddy is and wondering what his inherent state of perfect is. When Freddy concocts a new potion for Dodd, Dodd begins an exercise with Freddy called processing. By the way, how appealing does that drink look? It looks good. You thought so? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like yellowish. Yeah, that looked disgusting. In processing, Dodd asks Freddy a flurry of disturbing psychological questions. Have you ever had sex with a member inside your family? I gotta tell you, this scene had a huge impact on me the first time I saw it. Not what is said, really, but the whole pacing of it, this whole process, as they call it, the processing, a noteworthy part of the movie. Yeah, I think it's the centerpiece in a lot of ways. It's a a dual, very high-intensity, two of the great actors of all time, face-to-face, back and forth. Anderson put this about a half an hour into the movie intentionally knowing that sort of needed to like ramp it up and hook you in now with something. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yes. Say your name. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Say it again. Freddie Quill. Might as well say it one more time just to make sure you know who you are. Freddie Quill. Are you thoughtless in your remarks? I usually put some time into them. Do you linger at bus stations for pleasure? <laughs> no. Do you get muscle spasms for no reason? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures in life bother you? No. Is your life a struggle? No. Do you like to be told what to do? No. Is your behavior erratic? No. Do you find interest in other people? Not really. Do you find it easy to be fair? Yes. Are you often consumed by envy? No, about what? Are you often consumed by envy? You mean like jealousy? Like jealousy. Oh, well, yeah, I don't like someone else's hands on my girls. I don't like to think about that. It makes me sick. Are you scientific in your thought? Yes. Are you concerned with the impression you make? Mm. I don't understand. Yes, you do. Well, most people are asses, if that's what you mean. Are you usually truthful to others? No, I don't know. Sometimes. Are you unpredictable? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Silly. Silly animal. I couldn't help it. Silly (laughs) animal. Sorry. It's good to laugh during processing. (laughs) Sometimes we forget. 
Even if it is the sound of an animal. (laughs) (laughs) Freddy Quill, test session. March 5th, 1950, 1800 hours. Aboard the sailing vessel Alethea. LD, MOC, MD, logged and approved. Should we sample another sip before we join them upstairs? Wait, that's it? For now. No, 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 no. You gotta ask me more. This is fun. Come on, you gotta ask me more. Could you answer the next series of questions without blinking your eyes? Yes. Without fear and hesitation, answer as quickly as you can. Sure. Do you often think about how inconsequential you are? No. Do you believe that God will save you from your own ridiculousness? No. Have you ever had intercourse with someone inside your family? Yes. Have you ever had intercourse with someone inside your family? Yes. Who? My auntie. Have you killed anyone? No. Maybe? Not me. Have you killed anyone? No. How many times did you have intercourse with your aunt? Three times. Where's your aunt now? I don't know. Would you like to have intercourse with her again? No. Do you regret this? No. Where's your mother? I don't know, Louie. Infringement. Back to the start. Okay. Do you often think about how inconsequential you are? Yes. Do you believe that God will save you? No. Have you ever had sex with a member of your family? Yes. Are you lying? No. Who? Auntie Bertha. Where's your aunt now? I don't know, maybe home. Are you lying? No. Are you a liar? Yes. Have you killed anyone? Yes. Who? Japs in war. Do you regret this? No. What are you running from? Maybe hurt a man, I think. Maybe he's dead, I don't know. Where? In Salinas, he stole a batch of my booze and he drank it. Is this booze you make poison? Not if you drink it, smart. Are you trying to poison me? No. Where's your father? Dead. How did he die? Drunk. Where's your mother? Where's your mother? Looney bit. Is she psychotic? Yes. What is the name of your aunt? Bertha. How did you come to have sex with your auntie Bertha? I was drunk and she looked good. And you did it again and again? Yes. Have you ever had bad thoughts about Master Peggy? Yes. What did you think? I thought you were fools. Am I a fool to you? No, sir. If you were locked in a room for the rest of your life, who would be in there with you? Doris. Who's Doris? Best girl ever met girl I'm going to marry one day. Is she in Lynn? Yes. Lynn, Massachusetts? Yes, sir. And why aren't you with her? Uh, I'm an idiot. Why aren't you with that lovely girl? I got no reason. I'm a fool. Do you love Doris? Yes. Is she the love of your life? Yes, sir. Why aren't you with her? I don't know. Yes, you do. Tell me why you're not with her if you love her so much. I told her I'd come back, and I never went back, and now I just, I gotta get back to her. Why don't you go back? I don't know. Why don't you go back? I don't back? know! Close your eyes. It's a full-on confrontation of Freddy's painful past, full of bad memories. So are you taking it that Freddy had already revealed this 
information to him in some way. Such a specific question. Have you ever had sex with a relative? Uh, no, I don't think he. I don't think he revealed that to him. It's just most people with a dark, a darkness there have had some sort of situation. <laughs> Are you trying to bait me? <laughs> For how much we fucking talked about incestual things on this stupid podcast. Well. Yes, I mm-hmm. do think that it, it is something with people with fucked up, <laughs> who are that alcoholic, yeah, that yeah. fucked up. There's a higher percentage chance, of course. True. Plus, I think that, I think it was more common. Yeah. If you said it now to like a bunch of different people, you're probably going to get no's across the board, mostly. And like, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what people do, but <laughs> <laughs> I just think that there's something about time and history and i just feel like there's a line somewhere i don't know what year it was maybe one of our older listeners could chime in but there was some line some year where prior to this it seemed like people were fucking their family more often and then all of a sudden people were like you know what? we should be doing this yeah it's coming out in too many interviews (laughs) yeah i heard about this new thing called processing everyone's fucking spilling the beans But it did take me aback a little bit. No, I know, I don't think you're supposed to think that Dot already knows anything like that. I know. It's just, it's just like the third question. But there would probably be more fucked up questions yeah. that he would latch on to That's true. He's later. Just, this is the one that pops. <laughs> but I get a feeling there's a lot of them that yeah, pop with yeah, Freddy. True. <laughs> yeah, a man like Freddy has to be running away from something. Right. Obviously, it's more than just that, too. It's it's his what's going on with his mom and his dad. Incest, mental illness, family history, potential murder, and, <laughs> yeah, and Doris. Yeah. Fucking Doris. Oof. And then it changes. We're in the room with them together, and then Freddy is allowed to be given that gateway into his past, and we are through his eyes into a flashback to a past relationship with Doris, his sweetheart from back home, to whom he swore he would return. This is a very strange scene. I remember watching it the first time in the theater and being baffled by what I was seeing. Oh, yeah. Because it's so strange. Doris looks impossibly young and innocent, almost comedically so, where you're thinking she's a fucking child. What is happening here? Right. But she's also incredibly tall in the flashback. Huge, but not fat. It's just that she's big and he's little somehow. It's hard to explain it. She's a giant compared to him. She towers over yeah. Freddy, who looks all the more childlike in his navy blues. It looks like he's putting on a costume or something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even seem realistic. Because we're in Freddy's head. I don't think Doris is supposed to be so much bigger than him in real life. I don't think that's the case at all. But we're now in Freddy's perception. This is supposed to be indicative of how he views her. She looms large. Over oh, yeah. his memories, over his life. She's really everything for Freddy because I think she represents the happiness that he could not have with his own family. She calls to mind the enormous girl made out of sand from the opening. Freddy will be haunted by other tall women with reddish hair amongst the members of the cause. Doris is a source of tremendous pain, a reminder of Freddy's failures. And we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to it at, towards the end of the film, but... I think the idea of who Doris really is in his life is also kind of mysterious Mm -hmm. because there's even some weirdness when he's describing who she is to the psychology doctor or whoever that is in the army. 
a friend's sister, right? Something like yeah. that. So who is this friend? What is their connection? How well does he even know her? But that also plays into the sadness where he's taking something very small, maybe, and making it into something so much bigger. Making it the defining moment of his life. Relatable? Too much. Yeah. With Freddy, we have the idea of a guy who just can't. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason. Twisted up in fear and self-doubt and sadness and anger and trauma. He just can't. He can't go back to Lynn, Massachusetts to be with this girl that he promised he would return to, even though it seems like it's killing him not to. And I get right, that, right. too, yeah. <laughs> for some reason. That feeling of you just can't for some reason. And it never makes sense, and I'm not letting anybody off the hook, but you have these things sometimes where you're like, why don't you fucking call your kids? You never see them, you know, divorced parents or something. And it kills the dad to not talk to his daughter. Yeah, yeah. Who's like in first grade or something. But he can't do it. Right. Because he's so embarrassed or ashamed of himself or angry at her mother or whatever the fuck the reason is. And then it just doesn't happen. And this is that guy. You want something. You need it. It seems easy. And yet you can't do it. For whatever reason. That's Freddy. But also I just wrote here, processing works? Question mark. Yeah, really. Because it seemed like we actually did have a breakthrough here. Well, I do think that is part of why he, he sticks around for a while, even though it does start to fade. He at least is initially feels like he was moved by this whole experience. I think Hoffman's acting here is is tremendous, too. You really, truly believe Dodd is touched emotionally by what Freddy's describing. Yeah. He looks like it, and he looks like he's happy for Freddy. But I think this is sort of like a drug. They're sampling a drug, the two of them. And the drug is themselves, like with each other. The yeah. cause, but also everything around them. And this is what gets them These, addicted uh, to this. Like spiritual breakthroughs. And they can never quite recreate this feeling again. But yeah, they both got a sample of something here. Mm-hmm. The outtakes reveal that while filming the scene of... Hoffman and Phoenix smoking the cigarettes after their first processing scene. They both kept cracking up after Hoffman's line, I like Cool's minty flavor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Including the take that makes it into the film. In the film, it cuts away right before Hoffman started laughing. Okay. But you can see, like, the longer outtakes where they just, like, crack up every time. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I do enjoy that they bond over Cool's. And so perhaps for the first time, Freddy has found in Mr. Dodd many things which have proved to be elusive over the years. Lancaster Dodd, this well-dressed, well-groomed showman with all the answers, mysterious and gregarious, casting a tall shadow at the start of the 1950s. Freddy, as unlikely as it may seem on the surface, has discovered a kindred spirit in Dodd, a drinking buddy at ease on the edge of the world. In the cause, Freddy finds family, even if it never really makes sense to him. He's eager to try and fit in. This dynamic makes Dodd more of a surrogate father to Freddy rather than a brother. To Freddy, Dodd is both aspirational and inspirational. I think there's a little bit of both ways going on there in terms of aspirational because there is something, there's a charm to Freddy's I'm doing whatever I want to Dodd, I think. I mean, it really comes through at the end of the movie, but yeah, you're just a free spirit roaming the world doing whatever you want. Yeah, and I think there's more to it, too. So if we understand Freddy's attraction to Dodd and the cause, 
then what do we make of Dodd's fascination with Freddy? It doesn't take a genius to see that Freddy is an unstable liability who could threaten the cause at any moment. That may not make sense on the surface, but when you have these types of organizations that some would label as cults, you are under a constant microscope because you have to do things that don't seem legal, ethical, normal, etc. Just look at how they survive and live in the course of this film. They're Mm -hmm. taking money from other people. They have a nomadic existence, and they're saying things that aren't necessarily going to make people happy all the time. Basically, your religion doesn't work. Why don't you do this? Instead, you're going to be a target. They're a little aggressive about it. If you have a lunatic like Freddy in the mix, it's a liability. Dodd is a king among his followers, but this is a fledgling movement. So why does Dodd not only put up with Freddy, but also seem obsessed? Well, many people have picked up on the homosexual subtext that work in The Master, and I think that's more or less fair. I do think this is a love story, regardless of the sexuality element. And I do think that Dodd is probably a homosexual. Even though love is huge, and perhaps the biggest motivating factor out of anything, I still think there's more. Dodd spoke of a dragon. Conveniently, he did so not long after first speaking with a somewhat sober version of Freddy. I only say that because he references a drunken exchange, but it's not shown in the film and Freddy doesn't remember it. So Mm -hmm. he met with him one point later when Freddy does remember it. In truth, Freddy is that very dragon that Dodd hopes to train. He will spend time with the movement, mascot, symbol, even muscle, when deemed necessary. And above all else, tolerated rascal. However Dodd sees more, he believes that Freddy could mean so much more to the cause and to him personally. Freddy, if treated successfully, could be living proof. Hey guys, this shit really works. Yeah, well Freddy is also, look, there's some personality there and when you look around the cause, a lot of subdued characters hanging around. Well, that's probably what they want. Yeah. And they want to turn him into that. Right. Because then you can be like, how do I know this works? Look at this guy. Yeah, yeah. He used to be real fucked up. <laughs> he was eating paint. <laughs> Number one, no now red meat. <laughs> married to my daughter. <laughs> there is an attraction there. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's physical or sexual, but there's an attraction between the two. Definitely. That is real. But at the same time, Dodd also instinctually realizes this is a guinea pig. This mm-hmm. is the guy. And why does he think that? Well, we just talked about it. The first time they did a processing session together, it actually kind of did something. Right. So now he's got hooked into it. They're yep. hooked into each other. Okay, this worked. This actually worked. Whether it did or didn't, I don't know. But it seemed like it worked. They both had of. a visceral reaction to it. A breakthrough. Yeah. It's just enough positive reinforcement for Dodd, who likes to drink regular alcohol but now he likes to drink this fucked up shit and then he's like oh look i actually treated him hmm surprising himself i do think that he knows that he's kind of a fraud yeah, i don't think sure. that he's in denial well that comes that. through when he loses his mind a couple times when people challenge him yeah that's true but i do think that you can fool yourself eventually mm-hmm. and if this works with freddy because i think Part of being that guy is that you know when you're dealing with rubes, easy marks. But I don't think he thinks that Freddy is an easy mark or a rube. Correct. And he realizes, like, this kind of almost worked. I don't think you're dumb either. Mm -hmm. 
So, like, yeah, he's making it up, but I think he also thinks that maybe this can work. It's really hard to explain. It's very nuanced with these kind of things. Definitely. How much is bullshit versus how much is delusion? I think that this can work. Usually it's more bullshit than delusion, but I do think that both exist, and I think that he probably got a little half-chub at the success rate with sure. Freddy. He was like, oh, yeah. shit. Maybe like, I am a fucking god. <laughs> I know. Well, like all these things, they're very layered. Freddy has all of his reasons to go along with this. They have this moment, but it's also like religions are able to sort of prey on people that long to be a part of something. Right. So that's always going to be there as part of Freddy's story, too, even though he is skeptical. What, what I just experienced, was that me? What was you, darling? That man in the armor, was that me? Yes, that was your spirit. Our spirits live on in the, the whole of time, exist in many vessels through time. This is the vessel you're existing in now, in 1915. Excuse me. As you all may recall, during the trauma that you went through while we were processing, yes. it was of the utmost importance that you experience every detail, every specific detail through all of your senses of that memory, and that we go over it again and over it again and over it again until it loses its power. This is very- Excuse me. This is very important. Why it is important. Excuse me. Is if you bring someone mm -hmm. out of a traumatic event back to the present time, no matter how carefully you do that. Excuse me. If you have not gone over the Excuse memory. Me. Excuse me. Some of this sounds quite like hypnosis. Is it not? This is a process of dehypnotization, if you will. Man is asleep. This process wakes him from his slumber. I still find it difficult to see the proof with regards to past lives that your movement claims. Would you care to submit yourself to processing? Look through the telescope, as my friend said. Well, perhaps another time. You've also said that these methods, cause methods, can cure leukemia, according to your book. And Some you forms said. of leukemia. In being able to access past lives, we are able to treat illnesses that may have started back thousands, even trillions of years. Trillions? With a T, sir. <laughs> the Earth is not understood to be more than a few billion years old. Well, even the smartest of our current scientists can be fooled. Yes. You can understand skepticism. Yes, can you oh, yes, yes. For without it, we'd be positives and no negatives. Therefore, zero charge. We must have it. Good science, by definition, allows for more than one opinion. Which is it? why our gathering of data is so far-reaching. Otherwise, you merely have the will of one man, which is the basis of cult. Is it not? Tis, tis. And thankfully, we are, all of us, working at breakneck speeds and in unison towards capturing the mind's fatal flaws and correcting it back to its inherent state of perfect. Whilst writing civilization and eliminating war and poverty, and therefore the atomic threat. Well, <laughs> I find it quite difficult to comprehend, or more to the point, believe that you believe, sir, that time travel hypnosis therapy can bring world peace and cure cancer. I have never been to the pyramids, have you? No, 
And yet we know that they are there. Because learned men have told us so. May I ask, what is your name? John Moore. Mr. Moore, if I may. Is there something frightening to you about the causes travels into the past? Frightening? Yes. No. no. Well, what's, what's, what scares you so much about traveling into the past, sir? I'm not Are you afraid that we might discover that our past has been reshapen, perverted? And perhaps what we think we know of this world is false information. Time travel does not frighten me, sir, because it's not possible. What does frighten me is the possibility of some poor soul oh, with leukemia oh, there are dangers coming to in you. traveling in oh. and out of time, as we understand it. But it's not unlike traveling down a river, you see. You travel down the river, round the bend, look back, and you cannot see around the bend, can you? But that does not mean it is not there, does it? But certain clubs would like us to think that a truth, I say truth, uncovered should stay hidden. I belong to no club, and if you're unwilling to allow any discussion... No, this isn't a discussion, it's a grilling. There's nothing I can do for you if your mind has been made up. You seem to know the answers to your questions. Why do you ask? I'm sorry you're unwilling to defend your beliefs in any kind of rational way. Oh, if, if you, if you, if, if you already know way. the answers to your questions, then why ask pig fuck? We are not helpless. And we are on a journey that risks the dark. If you don't mind, a good night to you. <laughs> Freddy, stop. This is not the time. Stop. Freddy travels with Dodd's family as they spread the teachings of the cause along the East Coast. At a fancy dinner party in New York, a man questions Dodd's methods and statements and accuses the movement of being a cult. Dodd angrily berates him and asks him to leave. Freddy then pursues the man to his apartment and assaults him that night to Dodd's dismay and to some degree amusement definitely i know he does that thing where it's like no freddy you can't do that haha <laughs> bad boy <laughs> right naughty boy freddy when confronted dodd turns red very easily mm -hmm. seething it's embarrassment and anger it's indicative of the fact that most people don't question him and he doesn't put himself into situations where he's going to be questioned mm -hmm. because that's part of it and anytime people do question it's harassment, it's unfair treatment, that kind of a thing. You've already made up your mind, so why are we even having this discussion? Some forms of leukemia. <laughs> that is one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, if you strip away the most outlandish claims of the cause, mm -hmm. it's not really that different from any other religion, any other philosophical thing, any other motivational thing. There's a lot of different variations of these kind of things, but the issue is that in this particular case with the cause they're making all kinds of insane claims on top of it that's like the top layer but once you get past that it is sort of normal psychological stuff whether or not it works i, I don't know or care sure. but it's not that weird but right. the, the top stuff is going back in time billions of years <laughs> trillions <laughs> he mentions time travel <laughs> and curing cancer and all this shit it's like okay Kevin J. O'Connor in the mix. Familiar face from That's There right. Will Be Blood. Lancaster Dodd yelling out pig fuck was improvised by Philip Seymour Hoffman after Paul Thomas Anderson plucked out a piece of the actor's hair before the take. 
The huh. scene was later reshot at a different setting and with different background actors, but I guess Tim just like yelling that out was made up. I do love oh. that after this tense incident, they all have to stand in that elevator. Oh, yeah. And they're not making any eye contact with each other, even <laughs> though they're so jammed in there together. Right. There's a pretty funny outtake online, too, where someone farts. I think it's pretend. I think yeah. that's like a pretend fart. And they're all fucking losing it standing there. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Philadelphia, where our little traveling road show is, is welcomed by Helen Sullivan. Our beloved Laura Dern. LD in the mix. Almost right away, Lancaster's daughter, Elizabeth, makes a move on Freddie while sitting in the same room as her husband, Clark. Took me by surprise. Sort of like the uh, wedding crashers under the table scene. Yeah, I definitely think that the idea with Elizabeth is, and to a a greater extent later, Val, the son, Mm -hmm. is that these are people that grew up with this shit and they play along with it because it's their life. Yeah. It's probably where they get money. Well, they're the royal family. bullshit. Yeah. They know it's fucking bullshit. And she's bored as hell. She probably thinks Clark is an idiot for believing this shit. (laughs) I'm sure that's what's going on. She's like, this fucking idiot. (laughs) And Freddy is exciting and dangerous. True. And he is like the first time that something weird has been introduced into this world. Because I'm sure most of the men coming through are pretty lame. I'd say so. So even though Freddy's kind of fucked up looking and crazy, it's something completely different. Well, I think the first scene with Val, where he's talking to a guy on the boat who joined the cause recently or whatever. Val's like sort of mocking him. Oh, are you doing some fucking job or whatever? Let me know how that goes. Well, isn't he talking to Freddy in that scene? Uh, I think he is. Because Freddy doesn't know what's going on. Well, there's a random guy. I don't know. I thought that scene you're talking about where he's asking about a specific thing that was when they're sitting at the tables at the wedding, right? It's all during that sequence, but there's a random guy that is new to the cause. There's a scene here where they're all gathered together and somebody's playing piano and Dodd starts singing out a rendition of I'll Go No More A-Roving. Which he seems very drunk and sweaty in this. Yeah, I think that he is... Perpetually drunk and sweaty. Yeah. Okay. I think he's almost as big of an alcoholic as Freddy. Mm-hmm. And then we see this scene through Freddy's eyes eventually, and all of the women become completely naked. Now, there's a lot going on here similar. I'll go no more roving is sort of like Get Thee Behind Me, Satan, where it's saying that you're not going to cheat anymore and mm-hmm. do these things, but you're also kind of reveling in how fun that all is. Right. It's sort of that push-pull between chastity and debauchery. The only woman, though, when we see all of these women frolicking around nude, all ages, all sizes, not children, but you know what I mean. Right, right. (laughs) The only woman returning Freddy's gaze is Dodd's wife, Peggy. And so now you have fucking Amy Adams here, and like I just mentioned that she's in the movie and we move on. Now finally she kind of becomes a character here. It has been suggested that this signifies she's the only one who understands what Freddie truly is. A threat to her husband well, yeah, and the cause. She's kind of giving him evil eyes. Like you're I don't caught. know if I would say evil, but yeah, watchful. Yeah. To this point, the observant viewer may have noticed before this a few instances of Peggy's watchful eye staying on Freddie. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some other moments when they first arrive in New York and they're at that other party. 
She's always looking at him and making sure that he's not doing anything crazy. Understandably so. And here we go. She's like Kurt Russell in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't dig him, and I don't (laughs) dig the vibe he brings on set. Because then it transitions to an aggressive handjob Peggy is giving Dodd over a sink. Mm -hmm. Far more utilitarian than romantic. (laughs) Yeah, and she says some things here, like kind of giving him his instructions about what he's allowed to do. But I see people point to this as one of the things as like she's talking about Freddie and like a yes. sexual relationship there. I think you could just as easily be though like that he could be banging any of these chicks from the cause. Yeah, she's I think like, that it's look whatever you do, keep it away from. I this think it's crew. intentionally vague. Yeah, and ambiguous. I think even Laura Dern's character looks at him with an infatuation. Well, yeah, but that's also part of it too. Yeah, yeah, is that he doesn't seem to ever right. act on it with any other woman or anything. There is sort of the idea that it's possible that he is closeted. But Agree. That's yeah. just speculative, of course. What this scene is, though, is definitely a window into the true power dynamic. She is in charge, and she knows what's best for business. And frankly, whether he's wanting to fuck him or just drink with him, Freddie might be more trouble than he's worth. Uh-huh. And she does make allusions to Dodd's behaviors, vices. As he's basically coming, she's like, no more hooch. Yeah. But it's said in such a way where you're like, hooch could literally mean anything. Oh, that's true, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then she wakes Freddie up and gives Freddie an ultimatum. No more drinking or you have to leave. And when she talks directly to Freddie, she is very maternal. And sweet. And he's always confused and... It's interesting. The movie asks you to do some of the work on your own. It's not as if we see Freddy and Dodd drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you almost rarely see it. You just assume that it's happening. Right. Because we know who these guys are and what, what's been going on. Well, after her little ultimatum, you immediately see him drinking in the next scene. <laughs> when he's on the front porch. Yeah. yeah. Pulling out a flask. You know, you should wake up, Val. Father speaking. You might learn something. He's making all this up as he goes along. You don't see that? I can sleep and wake up and not have missed one thing. Did you someone say to me? No, sir. You should have. You should say something. Do something. Say fuck you. Be a man! All right. Fine. Fine, okay? Sit down. Shut up. Good afternoon. Come home. You're late. It's a beautiful house. Are you the owner? No, sir. Is that how your mother said it? We're looking for Lancaster Dodd. I don't know who that is. He's in the house. Oh, may I come in? He's just inside. Yes, come in. No, now hold on. Are you the owner? No, sir. Well, I have a civil warrant here for a Lancaster Dodd. You're late. Release and return to present time. He, the Excuse owner me, is in the house. May I come in? No, you can't. Just We're going to have to talk to you. Just inside. Uh, I have a warrant here to serve Lancaster Dodd, a civil warrant. What is happening here? 
Good afternoon. Are you Lancaster Dodd? Good afternoon. Yes, I am. I have a warrant for your arrest, sir. Goody. What are the charges? By the District Court of Pennsylvania, the Mildred Drummond Foundation for wrongful withdrawal of funds. This is a silly joke, no? No, it isn't, sir. No, this is... I have to take you in and book and fingerprint you. Comic opera. Is it illegal in this city to get better? No, but it's illegal to operate a medical school without a license. This is not a medical school. It's a sir, house. Sir, this is my home, and these are my guests. Oh, excuse me, ma'am. This no, is we, the we, city of Philadelphia. We have no disagreement with these boys Jean. doing their work and all its silliness. As defenders of what code? Well, we're at the city of Philadelphia Police Department. What honor? State of Pennsylvania, What honor sir? do you have? Would you please put your hands behind your back? We're part of the galaxy. Back up. It's a Freddie criticizes Dodd's son Val for disregarding his father's teachings, but Val tells Freddie that Dodd is making it all up as he goes along. You didn't know that? <laughs> like, I thought everybody knew that. Yeah, it's confirmation for the audience of what we already know. I'm not sure how much the truth actually matters to Freddy in this moment, but he certainly doesn't want to hear it. Sure. What I mean by that, though, is I'm never fully convinced that Freddy believes this at any point. I, I don't think so. He's more of just a loyalist to Dodd at this point. Yeah, I, and I think that's more interesting, too. Because yeah, yeah. just making him be a member of the cause is not that interesting, but making him be so devoted to Dodd right. rather than the cause itself is kind of intriguing. Dodd is arrested for practicing medicine without proper qualifications and fraud after his previous hostess, the one from New York, has a sudden change of heart. <laughs> Even the shit he says when he's getting arrested is so insane. He yeah. keeps referring to it all as silliness and their silly business. He's like, who do you represent? We represent the state of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. What honor? What honor? What galaxy? What part of the galaxy? <laughs> Freddy attacks the police officers and is also arrested. Dodd is freaking out that they're going to hurt Freddy. They're like, you don't hurt him. And then he's saying, just laugh, just laugh. <laughs> but I do think the next prison cell scene shot is kind of one of the key scenes that shows, I think, what PTA was trying to say about the two characters. What, you mean just the... Well, you have these two standing next to each other, Freddy handcuffed, flipping out, kicking toilets off the wall. You have, and, yeah, you have the uh, Dodd is standing there in almost like a posed, the animalistic, true nature of man, and then the illusion of right authority, and then the illusion breaks down. Well, another illusion, the illusion of tranquility, begins to lift. The illusions of power and control start to slide away. The second half of the film is dedicated to unraveling. Let's see the cracks in the facade, the man behind the curtain. Val drops an unwanted truth bomb, and moments later, Lancaster is arrested. Even if, deep down, Freddy already knew the truth, he didn't want to know. 
And that's what this relationship, the one between Freddie and Dodd, is all about. Want, desire. Freddie craves acceptance. He's a broken man lost in the shuffle. The painful truth of the toll of war and an ignorance regarding mental illness. Dodd loves the feeling of authority, power, and control. In Freddie, he sees the funhouse mirror version of himself. It's doubtful Dodd would admit that part. But he also sees the potential for a true believer, a convert, a face to go with his own claims. For Dodd, there is pleasure in playing lion tamer, and Freddie is his lion. And it's in the jail, in cells side by side, that Freddie and Dodd have their first blow-up. Freddie has an absolute meltdown and begins destroying the toilet in his cell. And this is where you continue to see the cracks in Dodd, because the things that Freddie is yelling and saying... It doesn't seem like Dodd should really get offended and upset by it, but he does. Yeah, because it flies in the face of the progress that they made in the processing sequence. Yeah, He's not seeing the progress. He's not seeing the change anymore. But also he's mad Mm -hmm. that he got arrested. He's mad that his former follower, the one who allowed for him to use her yacht and hosted him in New York City, has now turned her back on him. He's mad that there's nothing he can really do about it. He's embarrassed anytime this happens in front of his family and followers because it exposes the potential that he's a con artist. There's a lot going on. Sure. During the jail cell scene, Joaquin Phoenix breaks a real toilet. His actions were entirely improvised. Due to the historical past of the building where the scene took place, the toilet was considered historical. Oh, no. Phoenix had no intentions to break the toilet, nor did he think it was possible. It definitely adds to the effect of the scene. Destroying a historical toilet. (laughs) Oh, God. You've had some run-ins with historical toilets, but not in a good way. No. As part of Freddy's angry tirade, he questions everything that Dodd has taught him and accuses the master of being a fake. Dodd calls Freddy lazy and worthless and points out that nobody likes him except for Dodd. I think we can all agree with that. Hilarious. Intense. Mm-hmm. You have your animalistic freak out versus the cool, composed Dodd, who is then dragged down right. to Freddy's level. Your fear of capture and imprisonment is an implant from millions of years ago. This battle has been with you from before you know. This is not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. You are asleep. 
Your spirit was free. Moving from body to the next body. Free. Free for a moment. And then it was captured by an invader force bent on turning you to the darkest way. You've been implanted with a push-pull mechanism that keeps you fearful of authority and destructive. We are in the middle of a battle that's a trillion years in the making, and it's bigger than the both You're of us. You're making this shit up. You made this shit up. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. I give you facts. They don't give they me are not facts. Opinion. What facts? They are fucking what facts. facts. What facts? Fuck you. Facts. Fuck, Fuck you. you. Fuck you. Why don't you kick Fuck the you. bed some more? Fuck you. Fuck you, you Fuck lazy you. ass piece of Fuck shit. Fuck you, I'm not lazy. I'm done. You're uh, fucking lazy. No, you made shit. You're fucking lazy. You're I made shit. Your family hates you. Oh, You're saying so hate you. Oh, they do. Yeah. Who fucking likes you except for me? Nobody. Except for me. No, you don't fucking Who likes you except for me? Except for me. You shut up. I'm the only one who likes you. Fuck you too. Fuck you. Just me, Freddy. Just you. I'm the only one that likes you. The only one. You're fucking drunk. And I'm done with you. Shortly after the release, there's a Dodd family meeting regarding Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intervention, really. Clark leads the descent, but Elizabeth and Peggy join in too. But then Elizabeth... <laughs> I think he wants me. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's in love with me. Well, do you think Clark's story is true? I don't know. I, I don't think so, but yeah, I don't know. I know. It's almost like you could see Freddy saying that. What do you think that's worth? <laughs> But I, it's it, also possible that it's true, but it's being presented in a way that right, it was that something that it was meant, not. Yes. Agreed. Because I do think that Clark is jealous of Freddy. For sure. Because Freddy is number one follower. Favored yeah. by Dodd. I think everyone sort of can see that. They're not blind. Right. They all have to act a certain way, but Freddy can basically do whatever he wants. Uh-huh. And Dodd still likes him more. Peggy, I think it comes from a fear that everything they have will be gone because of Unraveled by this dude. One way or another. She's almost as interesting as Dodd himself Mm -hmm. in trying to decipher, does she believe this or not? Does she know it's bullshit? I think she does, but she enjoys the life that has come from it in some position of power. Bottom line, Freddy's drunk and dangerous. While the members of the cause, particularly Dodd's own immediate family, believe Freddy to be either deranged or an undercover agent or simply beyond their help. Undercover agent? Not really keeping a low profile? Freddy and Dodd reconcile publicly and passionately on the front lawn of Helen Sullivan's Philadelphia home. Having like a wrestling match. Dodd insists that Freddy's behavior can be corrected with more rigorous conditioning which Freddy struggles to internalize. I don't really enjoy this next series of tests, like walk into that wall. From the window. Yeah, really. To the wall. That's where that song came from.
Yeah. He gets trapped in this walking back and forth between the window and the wall and having to describe it. It seems like a punishment, perhaps. Then he gets into that thing with Clark. Mm-hmm. Clark's like, Doris, Doris, Doris. <laughs> Immediately. And then you have Amy Adams reading some sort of ancient pornography. Some sort of ancient, like, Fifty Shades of Grey. Fuck, fuck, fuck away. Yeah. <laughs> it's so intense. <laughs> She says some truly crazy shit. I think Lips of My Cunt is yes, maybe in there. Yes, that is mentioned. <laughs> that is mentioned. Yes, yeah. I wrote that down. Mentioned. <laughs> I made a mental note. Freddie accompanies Dodd to Phoenix, Arizona for a gathering of the cause and to celebrate Dodd's new book release. Which it seems like, from the way the movie's presented, that they are reaching new heights of followers. They are growing slowly, and they do have followers all over the country, but it's not huge yet. Right. But I think they're able to con their way into kind of a decent living, because look at their life. They don't really pay for anything. No. They just sort of leech on to different rich people who are involved. Yep. I doubt we have anybody who listens to this show who is a Scientologist, so whatever, but I don't really know anything about Scientology, but I do know that one of their things was targeting celebrities intentionally. Well, okay. So I'm wondering if that was sort of the same mindset with kind of elite, richer, rich, upper crust type people. Because you need somebody to bankroll what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> At the end of the day. Peggy makes the announcement that The Cause will be publishing her husband's second book, The Split Saber, in Phoenix, Arizona, because Phoenix symbolizes new beginnings. The same reason Joaquin Phoenix and his family changed their last name from Bottom after leaving the Children of God cult. Hmm. Soon after his parents had their second child, which was not River. River was the oldest. And then there was, I think, Rain. There's like four or five of them. There's a lot of them. They joined this religious cult called Children of God. It's sort of a famous cult in American history. And started traveling throughout South America and Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, as missionaries for the cult, where the next two children were born, they eventually grew disillusioned with Children of God and left in 1977. So I believe Joaquin Phoenix was only a few years old at that point, but his first few years of life would have been a part of this. They were opposed to the cult's increasingly distorted rules, particularly the practice of flirty fishing, which is legendary. Basically, even though they're sort of like a variation on the rules of Christianity. What they would do is like have like their hot chicks <laughs> seduce <laughs> guys to be a part of the cause. That's the way it was written into the scriptures. If you ever wanted to seduce me into the children of God, it wouldn't have been that hard. <laughs> I would have been like, okay. They're like, do you want to actually have sex or just was the promise enough? And I was yeah. like, the promise was enough. Yeah. I'll come. Yeah. <laughs> you need money. <laughs> Eventually they changed their surname to Phoenix inspired by the mythical bird. So sort of synergy to have that pop up in the movie, and that's Definitely. the same reasoning. According to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, at its height, the family movement, or the Children of God called, had a lot of different names, had tens of thousands of members, including River and Joaquin Phoenix, Rose McGowan, and Jeremy Spencer, who was in the original lineup of Fleetwood Mac. They were basically your run-of-the-mill doomsday apocalypse but tied in with jesus and that whole thing and sounds like a good time 
whatever. It's not too different from a lot of other religious things. But then in 1976, it began a method of, of evangelism called flirty fishing that used sex to show God's love and mercy and win converts, resulting in controversy. They had a leader named David Berg, who also gave himself the titles of king. Wow. And the last end time prophet and all these other different names. Sounds like a very modest guy. I'll skip over some of this other shit. But basically what happened was there were multiple allegations of child sexual abuse made by past members and the whole thing became very controversial as a result. When they get to Phoenix, there's some aesthetic similarities to There Will Be Blood out here in the Southwest. And in a way, at first... It does have the feel of a reset, a rebirth trying to happen. Peggy's words kind of straining, maybe, sure. to ring true. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to go out to the desert. We're going to start over. Dodd and Freddy go out into the desert to dig up Dodd's unpublished work, which for some reason was buried <laughs> out there. I guess he was that. Seemed like an asinine thing to do. Paranoid that somebody yeah. would steal it. My life's work, he describes uh-huh. it. Then posing for a series of portraits. He's out here wearing dude ranch attire. I know. And I was getting that vibe of Owen Wilson and Royal Tenenbaums. Just a complete fraud. Yeah. Nothing more than cosplay. <laughs> yeah. And he'll do it again later, too. He loves dressing up. Oh, yeah. He's a real man's man in his <laughs> mind, at least. So the book is called The Split Saber. Ridiculous. And then sure. <laughs> the foreword or the little dedication... As a gift to Homo sapiens. <laughs> what a horse's ass. Really? <laughs> yes. Freddy gets a chance to use his skills as a photographer. He takes a couple of author portraits for Dodd. It's a callback to another life for Freddy. That's enough now. You're going to make me red all over. Thank you. Thank you. Book two is about man. And the title of the book is The Split Saber. And here we have some answers. No more secrets. The source of all creation, good and evil, and the source of all, now, funny enough, the source of all is you. I have unlocked and discovered a secret to living in these bodies that we hold. And oh yes, it's very, 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 very serious. (laughs) The secret is laughter. Now, I'd like to discuss processing and communication. 
Though initially received with a warm welcome in the desert, things start to fray for Dodd and the cause in short order. When Dodd's publisher criticizes the book, Freddy assaults him. Helen, as we know, previously an acquiescent acolyte, so much behind the cause that she offered up her home to Dodd and his followers and family, causes Dodd to snap after she questions some of the book's details and inconsistencies. Yes. Yes. If our previous method was to induce memory by asking, can you recall, doesn't it then change everything? Now we say, can you imagine? We are invoking a new wider range to account for the new data. Can you imagine allows for a more creative pathway to the mind, more open. But if the new what do you want? Helen. This is the new work. What we're seeing here also takes a little bit of historical knowledge on the viewer's part and maybe mm-hmm. something you would more or less have to think about later or pick up on because this does feel like a breaking point. People are getting mad. People are pointing out this is filler. This is bullshit. But what you have to remember is these are the diehards. These oh, yeah. were the people who were here first. Right. What Dodd is actually doing is expanding in order to allow for more people to join later. He's actually loosening um, the reins. New investors. Because he realizes that in order to grow, he's going to have to open it up a little bit more and allow for more leniency, a little more change here Be and less there. rigid. Yeah, and these people aren't liking it because it's different from what he said earlier. Right. And this is growing pains. This is how this would work. This is exactly how it did work, if you're going to make the comparison to real-life stuff. And... The only way you can really think about this and rationalize it as a viewer is to think about where they are now versus where they are in England at the end of the film, where it seems like, oh, well, things are clearly doing better now. Mm -hmm. But why is that if people are getting mad and it seems like everything's getting fucked up? It's really about survival and adaptation for the cause. And if you want to be real cute about it, that's the master (laughs) that he's serving, Right, is the growth and protection of the cause. Finally, Dodd takes a small group, Freddie, Clark, and Elizabeth, out to a salt flat, inviting them to play a game consisting of picking a point in the distance and driving towards it in a straight line on Dodd's motorcycle. Weird game. He just wants a chance to show off his motorcycle. Exactly. Dodd demonstrates, and upon returning to the group, he calls it thrilling. <laughs> Again, he's dressed like in the leather jacket. I know. The cuff jeans. And it is... It's this outfit and the last one, you're pretending to be someone that you're not. Yeah. That's his whole life. Right. I know. Yeah. (laughs) On Freddy's turn, he drives off at a high rate of speed and disappears into the horizon, never turning back. I did like Elizabeth. Yay, Daddy. Yay, Freddy. (laughs) Like jumping up and down. It's like, so stupid. (laughs) Meanwhile, Freddy's just, I'm leaving. Fuck this. I'm out of here. People have said that this is a Melvin and Howard homage, the 1980 Jonathan Demme film. Oh, okay. Because PTA is a big Jonathan Demme fan. Freddie, now, I think he did not handle the publisher and Helen having criticisms well. First of all, he attacks Kevin J. O'Connor, the publisher. I know, yeah. (laughs) 
doesn't attack Helen, but it's clear that he's constantly wrestling with his feelings. It's possible that the change in the text has provided some kind of confirmation in his mind. Like, I fucking knew this was bullshit, and now he's mad. That could be part of it. I don't know. He's feeling alienated, and it's time for some distance. Freddie returns home to Lynn, Massachusetts, and tries to see Doris, but he learns from her mother that she's gotten married, started a family, and is currently in Alabama. I would say Doris's mom, pretty sweet to our, she's uh, scared. our hero Freddie here. <laughs> she seems kind of yeah worried. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Let's try not to but, make a scene. Well, but she's willing to offer up Doris's address. That's true. Yeah. Her name now is Doris Day. <laughs> and she got married to Jim Day. Yeah. That Jim Day? Yeah. Is he still ugly? She's only 23, which yeah. I was, I fucking lost it. Well. With, how old is Doris now? 23. Meanwhile, Joaquin Phoenix looks like he's so old. I know. <laughs> Again, you, you do wonder how well does he really know Doris? Did he ever know her? He's obviously put her on some kind of a pedestal. We see some of these flashbacks, mm-hmm. but... You don't know what's real. You don't know what's real. You don't know what's embellished or imagined. Clearly, he sees her, at least in his past mind, as a chance for family stability and love. But for her, I don't know what she thought of this. Was it just a childish schoolgirl fantasy for her? Was it more than that at all? Yeah. Could it have been anything to her? I don't know. Later, Freddie sleeps in a movie theater and receives a phone call from Dodd, who begs him to visit him in England, where Dodd now resides. It seems strange when it's happening, and then later it's confirmed to be a dream. Yes. Which I think then throws into question a lot of the other shit we see in the movie. Because you assume that Freddie is an unreliable narrator just because of the guy he is and the the stuff he drinks, but... You have no confirmation of it, but now this happens, and it's kind of disguised as being real for a second. I think it's kind of clear, even if they don't say later that it's a dream. But I think so. It is weird, and it throws you off, because now you're having a lucid dream, mm-hmm. and you're thinking, okay, so is it possible that other things weren't as real as we thought? I don't know. But it's clear that there's been some passage of time. I think you're supposed to believe that three years have passed since he drove off from Arizona, but they don't really sure specify that entirely in the movie. But clearly, some amount of time has gone by. Absolutely. They've set up shop in England. They have this big school. The cause has actually grown, which, again, flies in the face of what we just saw, which is that tempers were flaring. Yeah. People were questioning it. It's grown, but when Freddie goes to visit Dodd, it feels very hollow. You know, they're in this kind of like big room. And it's just Dodd. Well. And his wife. Yeah, I think that probably speaks to Dodd missing a little bit of that wildness. Mm -hmm. But this is what he's built, and now it must be protected. You can't take this life straight, can you? Peggy asks. Yeah. When Freddy arrives in England. That also feels like a double-edged sword, Matt. (laughs) Straight. Yeah, true. Okay. It's clear that things have changed. The cause has grown significantly without needing Freddy as it's proof positive that it works. He's followed his dream and come to England, but it's not the happy family Freddy would have hoped for. Though Dodd is still happy to see him. Peggy now is doing a lot more of the talking, though. Yeah, it does feel like she's running the show a little bit more. 
Well, I think that there's a reason yeah. because they've built this and now this fucking guy shows back up and right. she's like, get the fuck out of yeah. here. <laughs> this fucking idiot. If I, if I catch this goddamn asshole drinking paint thinner, the hooch. <laughs> I'm taking over the cause. Yeah. <laughs> there's no real work to be done for Freddy. Peggy isn't interested in him volunteering to work. She says, this is something you do for a billion years or not at all. <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, storms away. <laughs> you discussing the podcast with me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Free winds and no tyranny for you. Freddy. Sailor of the seas. You pay no rent. Free to go where you please. Then go. Go to that landless latitude. And good luck. For if you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? you be the first person in the history of the world. My dreams. You said you'd, you'd figured out where we met. I went back and I found it. I recalled you and I working together in Paris. We were members of the Pigeon Post during a four and a half month siege of the city by Prussian forces. We worked and rigged balloons that delivered mail and secret messages across the communications blockade set up by the Prussians. We sent 65 unguided mail balloons and only two went missing in the worst winter on record. Two. If you leave here, I don't ever want to see you again. one enemy and I will show you no mercy I'd love to get you 
on a slow boat to China all to myself alone get you and keep you in my arms evermore leave all your lovers weeping on a faraway shore way out on the briny with the moon big and shiny melting your heart of stone I want to get you on a slow boat to China all to myself alone. Dodd states that if Freddie can find a way to live without a master, any master, then he is to let the rest of us know because he will be the first person to do so. Dodd also recalls where he and Freddie knew each other from, a past life. They worked in Paris sending balloons across a blockade created by Prussian forces. And though in the past Freddie was a mark for the master's charm and charisma. No more. He seems immune to this reincarnation fairy tale. Though it is poetic. There is a heaviness now present Mm -hmm. between them. It's a reunion on the edge of a final parting, which is a weird thing. And they both seem to know it. Dodd provides Freddy with one last ultimatum. Devote himself to the cause for life or leave and never return. When Freddy suggests the possibility of meeting again in the next life, Dodd claims that if they do, it will be as sworn enemies. He will show him no mercy. (laughs) Added that on for some reason. Finally, Dodd sings a bit of On a Slow Boat to China as Freddy starts to cry. Again, this is a song that conjures up romance, but in a slightly rapey, out-of-touch way. Sure. I saw it compared to Baby It's Cold Outside, Mm. that kind of a thing. Because when you think about what does this mean, I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. Basically, I'd like to corner you so you have no choice. Oh, boy. (laughs) I think. I think that's kind of what you get out of it. Double entendres left and right. It does fit in with Get Thee Behind Me, Satan, and I'll Go No More A-Roving. There's a feeling of regret, though. There's a feeling of, quote, alas, Mm -hmm. dot, 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 unquote. Some more with the queer subtext between these two. We can't really figure out what their deal is. But I do think that it's oddly touching. Neither man will get exactly what they're seeking, which is more complex for Dodd. Mm-hmm. It's straightforward for Freddie. We know what he wants. Definitely. His motivations are his sadness over the past and his desire to be accepted. He'd like to see Doris drop the day. <laughs> we fought the day and we won. Yeah. We won. What Dodd wants, though, I think is harder to explain. We don't know exactly. Does he want to fuck a man? Does he want to f- drink poison? Does he want to run off from the cause? Yeah, I mean, I do think he yearns for this freedom. He's sort of built this world, and now he, it's a little bit of a prison to him. Yeah, he's gotten too good at being the drifter. Yeah. 
when you get too good at it, you develop a following, you develop a principle, and then you build something, and then all of a sudden you're not a drifter right. anymore. PTA does allow for a slightly happy ending for Freddy, though, an unexpected coda. In one way, it's almost saying it all worked for Freddy. I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Where, at long last, Freddy finally gets that nut. (laughs) He's able to have a normal interaction with a woman. Uh, Somewhat normal. (laughs) I don't know if you start doing processing questions with them if it's that normal. Well, it seems like he's doing it in a cheeky way. Freddy picks up a woman named Wynn from a local pub, repeating questions from his first processing session with Dodd as he is having sex with her. The film closes back towards the beginning, back on that beach again, curled up next to the crude sand woman sculpted by Freddy's Navy comrades towards the end of the war. Mm -hmm. What can you say? A lot to it. They've now parted and gone their separate ways, probably never to interact again. The Master is as dense as a novel and as beautiful as a Terrence Malick film. Ostensibly, Anderson is telling us about the origins of the cause, potentially a stand-in for Scientology, with Freddy as the audience's avatar, except, of course, he's not really doing that at all. Right. I actually think a thinly-veiled takedown of Scientology is beneath PTA. Definitely. And his bigger ambitions as a filmmaker. Instead, The Master is a story of codependency, friendship, love, and the pursuit of familial acceptance. Two men seemingly on opposite ends of some kind of spectrum, but also very much two sides of the same coin. Freddy barely able to control his violent and sexual urges, seething, pulsating, animalistic, and then Lancaster Dodd, the master, trying to convince the world that he has conquered those basic desires and that you can too. Anderson deftly recreates the world where and when men like Freddy and Dodd could exist cross paths diverge and reunite it's the fragility of post-war america cleverly concealed behind the shiny veneer of giant chrome automobiles tranquil green suburbs and the promises of a brighter tomorrow part of the greatest generation was wounded the kind of wounds you might not be able to see but we know it was not really a time for empathy, introspection, or appropriate care for mental health. Denial is so much easier. And I think what you see in The Master and in great films like this, whether it's There Will Be Blood or films by other filmmakers, is regardless of how accurate it is, it's more what you kind of feel like is the real America. Kind of the loose around the edges, Wild West the pre-digital America mm, right. where people kind of came and went and murdered and fucked and did all kinds of crazy shit. I but, might have killed a guy. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more darkness in the history than you would think, especially once you start getting closer and closer to what we think of as modern times, mm-hmm. that post-World War II era where all of a sudden now you're in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and now you know, you're basically in what we consider to be our same era almost. yeah. yeah. But there is that looseness, that dirt underneath the fingernails. And then you have guys like Lancaster Dodd, and there definitely is a grift going on. But in a weird way, it doesn't seem as bad in this microscope. And I don't know how to explain it exactly, but 
if you were to just take whatever the popular consensus is of Scientology and believe that to be true, then I don't see how you could think of the master as anything but a flattering and slightly sympathetic portrait of it in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because it never really fully commits to trying to expose anything or tear anything down, but it it, it sort of does the real nitty-gritty stuff and... I don't know. There's just so much going on in it. I don't know that we really fully explained it or conve- I, we can really convey what's going on well, here. Well, it's tough. It's one of those ones, just like There Will Be Blood, where I feel like I understand it more with every viewing, but it still seems like there's several left to go. Yeah. I think that between a handful of his films, I don't know that you would necessarily count Magnolia, but mm-hmm. definitely Boogie Nights, definitely There Will Be Blood, definitely The Master, definitely Inherent Vice. I know that Licorice Pizza is also a period piece, but I I don't think that one really qualifies either. Punch Drunk Love, definitely not, and Heart Eight, definitely not. But there's definitely this history lesson at play, yeah. and it's this alternate version. Phantom Thread, yes, but that's not America. That's not the same thing. Okay. Not that I'm being anti-European sure. or anything, but I'm just saying that that's not the same history lesson. I think that he works in this past of mostly California, and I think that his films become their own texts that help us learn about ourselves and our own country and our own history, even if the events in the films are only based on things and not actually the things. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you watch The Master even if you can't grasp everything, I think the least you can do is potentially get a different feel oh, absolutely. of the 1950s, 40s, that era, like that post-war era and how it felt. I don't think it was really until the Vietnam War or even later where people really started to embrace the idea that these guys are coming home and they're like fucked up because there was sort of a denial. It's like, let's be normal. Let's push this in the background. Let's not address this. Paul Thomas Anderson has a way with these period pieces of making it seem 100% authentic. Yeah. So if you haven't seen The Master, check it out on HBO Max. I think that instead of recommendations, we're going to read an email. Mail. Mailbag. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead, you keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. If you'd like to email the show, greatestpod at gmail.com, greatestpod at gmail.com, and we will read your emails on the program, and we will interact with them in interesting, fun ways. And I threw this one at Matt, and he doesn't even know what's going to (laughs) happen. No, but I did have homework for it, so. This email as the subject line, Ask Clown Debate Club. <laughs> oh, boy. Hi, Zach and Matt. Respect and all that. Hey, look, your last pod audience letter, Murph in Alaska, is my good buddy. Oh. And my old housemate. Love and it. And got me to try your show. Kindly, if I can ask a fan favor, could you guys please address one question that has plagued Murph and I for over a decade? Simply put, I say the island of Dr. Moreau is a classic. He says it's crap. <laughs> Here's the thing, right you off the can bat. Can it be both? He refers to the film as the island of Dr. Moreau and then like three eyes, like three. 
I'm not sure what he's referring to, but he Did does we watch mention the right one. Well, he mentions Marlon Brando. Okay, later, okay, so I didn't know what that meant. I don't know if he's seeing it as listed as that somewhere because there's two other ones that predate it. It must be that then. Yeah. Lots of people say it's crap. May I add that the first time I heard Moreau, I fell asleep with the cable on, and this movie went into my dreams at about 1 a.m. I slept all the way through when the savage animal attack noises on Marlon Brando woke me up. It was intense, but I knew I had witnessed something great. Please say something good about Moreau, just a little credit, if you can find any to share so I can use it as a stick to beat my mate Murph with because he loves your podcast. Thank you, Dave in Montana. Well, Dave, we went the extra mile, and I sent Matt a text asking him to watch The Island of Dr. Moreau, and I was planning on doing so as well. I do have a little bit of a history with it. I can remember... You um, were in it. Yeah, that's right. That's your history. I'm one of these animals, one of these animal people. I can remember the trailers for it. You know, I was like nine years old when this movie came out, and it did freak me out. It seemed like something that would scare me. But I never saw it until years later when I was just thinking about it and not really knowing. I was kind of thinking it was like a Michael Crichton thing just because it was around the Jurassic Park, Congo era, and like right. that type of thing, it seemed like. But it's actually like a H.G. Wells, isn't it? Uh, I believe so. I can't remember. But I did watch it in the early 2000s at some point, and I was like, eh, I don't really know. And years went by until your text, <laughs> and this was the, the first revisit since then. Well, Dave, the movie stinks, but <laughs> I will say this. I'm not mad I watched it. I was entertained in a way. It was cracking me up. It's way more insane than I would have thought. It is wild. Because it does have a reputation for being terrible and being a troubled production. They fired the original director four days in after he spent four years in pre-production, and this was like his dream project. Always going to be a rough start. (laughs) And then they brought on John Frankenheimer, who then clashed with everybody, and it was it's become one of those legendary productions. It has a reputation that precedes it. So I was expecting something really horrific. And while I will say it is pretty bad, it's way more entertaining than I would have thought. Not always in intentional ways. Sometimes I'm laughing at it. I was losing it when Val Kilmer is dressed up as the Marlon Brando character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Island of Dr. Moreau came out in 1996, and it stars Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, David Thewlis, Feruza Balk. And it was directed by John Frankenheimer. Originally, it was going to be directed by Richard Stanley. Yes, it is based on the H.G. Wells novel. Stanley did the screenplay along with Ron Hutchinson. It has a 4.5 on IMDb. I think on Letterboxd, it has something like a 2 or 2.1 oh, yeah, or something. Okay. It's pretty low. So I was expecting something worse even than what it is. I was actually a little impressed by the look of some of the beasts. Yeah. And the voice was kind of creepy, and the one reminded me of Bane. Some of them kind of grossed me out. (laughs) Like when Hyena's right up in David Thewlis' face at the end. Yeah. And it's almost like the drool or (laughs) something. It's like about to drip on him. Val Kilmer described the shoot as crazy. Marlon Brando was still recovering from his daughter's suicide. The day production started, the French government set off an underwater atomic bomb near Tahiti. Wow. 
where Brando owned an atoll. Kilmer turned on the TV and learned that he was getting divorced. Two days later, the studio fired director Richard Stanley due to their concerns over the film's direction, and then Frankenheimer comes in. He clashes with everybody. <laughs> it's just a total mess. That's amazing. I do appreciate that the film is pretty short. Yeah, yeah. It was an easy watch. Yeah, I didn't regret watching it because it is amusing. Yeah. Brando's performance is insane, of course. His one child, the little one, when they're both playing their pianos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were definitely moments where I was screaming yeah. <laughs> and fucking losing it. So I, I I was happy to watch it just to address this email. See, I can't promise that if people write emails, we'll watch a movie and respond to it. I don't know. We'll just see. have to see how it is. If you, it's an hour and a half, it's a lot easier to do. If you send an email, you never know how we're going to respond to it. But we are fascinated that... People are spreading the word of our show. I love it. One yeah. guy's emailing, then his friend is emailing. They're in two different states. The Ask Clown community is out there. It's growing. <laughs> it's like the cause. Now, there may only be one person in your state yeah. who listens, but you could find each other. You could start branching together. Like, we've had some Laura Derns already, where they were like, you guys have changed the direction we're out. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you want? <laughs> Big fuck <laughs> me, <laughs> except yelling at you usually. Yeah, I know. That's me when I'm editing the podcast right. later and I'm hearing the things you're actually saying. <laughs> Big fuck. <laughs> Cut. Oh god. All right. So thanks to Dave yeah. for the email, and yeah, we're we're sort of goofing on the movie, but I do like it in a weird way. I don't know that I would ever watch it again, but I did find it fascinating. Because it looks really weird. And I guess, you know, coming off of a week where we just called the Turtles movie unique 25 times. <laughs> but. Well, it is, to be fair. I kind of felt the same way yeah. about this. It, the look of the things was not what I was expecting for 96. Agreed. And it made me miss it. I, again, a familiar refrain, but even though this movie kind of sucks, yeah, and I'm sure it bombed and lost all Everything kinds of money. Everything about it did look like that definitive 90s studio filmmaking though i just think like this is another example where it kind of looks cooler that it's not cgi yeah that's all i can really say but yeah if you would like to email the show greatestpod at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at greatestpod. if you'd like a free sticker just let us know either on twitter or email and we'll get that sent out to you i believe we are all up to date if you have ever asked me for a sticker and you haven't gotten it Please email the show, greatestpod at gmail.com. I've sent all the ones out that have come to me. Okay. Well, right. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it got lost in the mail. I don't oh, know. I'm true. just saying okay. if anyone oh, ever true. doesn't yeah. get it, that's just true. let me know. I, yeah. I wouldn't get return to sender on it or anything. So please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on yeah. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading it. We love interacting with people on Twitter, email, whatever. Questions, comments, concerns. And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. As mentioned at the top of the program, up next, three straight listener requests. So if Buckle you've been up. waiting, get Now's ready. your moment. And then three more coming in May. And if you would like a listener request of your own, you better act fast if you want to hear it in July or August. Because we are filling up slots, and the slots don't move if we don't fill them up. There's basically going to be one or two per month. If that month passes, then there's still just going to be one or two in the next month. So 
If you want it, jump in. No pressure, though. If you'd like to give us a tip for lesser amounts of money, you can also do that. The tip jar is on Twitter. Always available. It is a cash app situation. We have had people create cash apps just to buy a listener request. It's not very hard to do. When I set the one up for the show, it took like five minutes. And then if you want to buy a listener request or give us a donation and then delete your uh-huh. cash app, you could probably do that too. If no offense about it. to anyone having a nervous breakdown trying to figure out how to install cash app. Well, we also are available for PayPal, but that's yeah. something you'd have to reach out for. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And as I said, these episodes are coming fast and furious. So make sure you're subscribed. They're going to be jam-packed. There's going to sometimes be two a week. Whatever we got to do. But make sure you download the episodes. Please. <laughs> we, need the, we need those download numbers. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
I like coals. The minty flavor. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Ever. <laughs>